So, hello, my name's Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at 3906 Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined in the shed today, which I should warn you is a shed which may have occasional drilling noises from outside, but I'm really pleased to be joined in the shed by Dr. Chris Danbury. Chris, as you know, I'm always much more interested in, in, in the person I'm speaking to introducing themselves rather than me trying to guess. So Chris, over to you, just to, just give us, give, your, give us a pen picture of yourself or a word picture of yourself, please. Okay, um, I uh, trained as a doctor, um, obviously, um, uh, at St George's, qualifying in, in 1990. Um, my, my grandfather was a doctor, my father was a barrister and recorder. Um, and um, then I went into general medicine. I've always been interested in the, in the sickest patients uh, in the hospital. Um, so I went into general medicine, which is where I felt that they, they were. Um, and um, over the next few years, um, got my membership of the Royal College of Physicians, um, and then realized that actually the really sick patients were in the intensive care unit. And at the time, intensive care medicine wasn't a specialty in its own right. So I changed to train in anesthesia and intensive care. Um, I uh, became a consultant in anesthetics and intensive care medicine in 2002. Um, and um, around this time, um, my interest in, in law or medical law came back um, and I completed a distance learning MPhil in medical law at um, University of Glasgow. Um, and my supervisor was Professor Sheila McLean, who um, has published widely in, in, in this sort of area. Um, uh, fo following that, I, I was then became very interested in academic medical law um, and got a, a, a visiting fellowship at the University of Reading and worked with Professor Chris Newdick. Um, and that culminated in the first edition of Law and Ethics in Intensive Care, um, which was published by AUP in 2010. Um, I'd been resisting um, uh, sort of blandishments and, and pressures to do any sort of expert witness work up until this point. Um, but uh, I was persuaded to um, start doing some expert witness work in the Court of Protection um, after the first edition came out. Um, and one of the first cases that, that I was instructed in was um, Aintree versus James, which, as you know, was the first court of protection case that made it up to the Supreme Court. Um, and the, the decision from um, Mrs. Justice Peter Jackson, as he was then, um, and the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court really made me go back and look and think hard about my thoughts on capacity, consent, best interests. I thought I understood it fairly well. Um, and, and I think my my view was a sort of a fairly conventional one at the time, but I realised I got it wrong. Um, and um, Am I allowed the... to just interject there? And I think I, I can't really let that pass. So why? How, how did it change? Um, well, well, how it changed was really the emphasis on, on the, um, the family. Um, although the... Um, the, the, the emphasis on best interest following the Mental Capacity Act was about um, was not medical, purely medical best interests, but encompassing um, the family and um, other um, definitions of best interests. I, I, although I paid lip service to it, I don't think I really fully properly understood it. 
Um, and then um, throwing into the mix at the time before Aintree, we didn't have a proper understanding of what the court understood futility was. Um, and one of the big things that I did in Aintree um, was um, a, a significant part of my report um, was looking at definitions of futility. Um, and I, I, I consider them to be broadly um, consist of, of three types of definition. There's a physiological based definition. Um, so if you give a drug, it doesn't work. There's a probability based definition, um, which is what medics, uh, including myself, use for most of the time. So if there's less than a 1% chance of something working, then we'd call it futile. Um, and then there's a, an economic based um, analysis. And, and that's what the National Institute for Care and Health Excellence uses. Um, so um, treatments generally aren't approved by NICE unless they uh, cost um, less than £30,000 per quality, quality, quality adjusted life year. So, so those are the definitions of utility that I discussed in my report. And I was very surprised when, uh, when the judge um, uh, latched onto um, physiological futility as the definition, the definition of futility that, that, that he preferred. And that seems, although this is your area, not mine, seems to be endorsed by um, the Supreme Court. Um, and I wasn't expecting that. I was, I was expecting a probability-based definition. Um, so uh, if you're going to use a physiological-based definition of um, futility, then it means that far more treatments are non-futile um, than I had thought. And then if you're bringing into the, um, the, the, the context um, the non-medical aspects of best interests, it makes the territory incredibly muddy. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just far muddier than I thought it was going to be. Um, so the follow-on from Aintree was um, I spent a number of years wondering what on earth um, I was doing as an expert in the court of protection um, and whether I was helping or hindering. Um, and, and then there was another case um, that I was involved with um, that I was instructed in. And um, I, I turned up to the hospital concerned to CP and um, the, the hospital was actually being, um, uh, there, there, there was a demonstration going on about P outside. Um, and so there were, there were 250 people picketing the hospital, which was interesting. Um, that was, that was, that was a, a stressful uh, visit. Um, and uh, then eventually when we got to court, um, the, the judge in, in, in the case uh, suggested that the parties um, had a discussion about whether or not they could come to an agreement. Um, and it was, it was, it was um, uh, one of your members of chambers who was actually, um, it, 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 um, I can't remember who she was representing, but it was uh, Annabel Lee um, was one of, one of the um, barristers. And she said she thought it was a good idea. Um, and so I spent the next eight hours um, mediating a resolution between the two sides, the two parties. And I didn't know what I'd done until the judge said at the end of the day, um, uh, he, he tried very hard not to listen to any of the discussions that were going on, but he heard what I was saying. And um, um, he congratulated me on, on mediating resolution to it. And I thought, oh, so that's what I've done. And that was my light bulb moment. Um, and then I thought, well, if I'd done that, this was far more satisfying to me than, than 
um, acting as a pure expert. Um, so I thought, well, I better go and get trained. So I went and got trained in mediation um, and, and, and the rest is history. So I'm now a registered mediator with the Civil Mediation Council. Um, I've got a particular interest in mediating um, serious medical treatment disputes, but um, I'm the only doctor with a license to practice who's recognised by NHS resolution to mediate clinical negligence disputes for them. Um, and I, I've, I've, got some, I've got some thoughts on how to mediate um, and, and what mediation is and, um, and um, the differences between things like clinical negligence and serious medical treatments. Well, let's, so let's, let's sort of get ourselves into it by thinking, well, just in very broad terms, you know, for people who vaguely heard the term mediation, how would you, how would you describe it? Okay, so as a mediator, I'm, I'm very much the ghost in the room. Um, I am not a decision maker, positively not a decision maker. Um, what I'm there is to allow discussion between the parties to try to come to an agreement that um, both find is acceptable. Um, and um, I think that this comes back to how human beings make decisions in the first place. Um, and if you look at the work by um, Daniel Kahneman and his colleague Amos, Amos Tversky, um, they um, have got a, a very good structure. They have developed a very good structure um, on um, how human beings make decisions. Um, Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for Economics based on that work, and he um, produced a, a similar book, um, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, and it, it talks about um, heuristics and biases and um, how people um, tend to jump into making decisions. And once you've made a decision, then it's actually very difficult to go back and reappraise it. So I think what happens is, is that the, the, the framework of a given situation sets the structure for the clinicians to make decision A, whereas the family or the patient will make decision B when presented with the same information. And as a mediator, what I see my role is, is as an applied behavioral psychologist to try to allow um, both parties to actually reappraise, reassess and reevaluate um, their decisions to see whether it can be moved into more of a centre ground. There, there's a, a good definition of mediation where a successful mediation is one where everybody goes away equally unhappy. Um, and I, I, I quite like that. It's not entirely true, but I quite like it because it, it implies that people have moved from their starting position. Um, so I think that's what I do as a mediator is I actually facilitate um, a reappraisal and re-examination uh, of um, a, a decision that has been made um, to allow or to avoid having to go to court. Um, I mean, the, 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 you will know better than I, but um, the, 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 I, I think you have to have um, litigation as the final pathway to resolve a dispute. But any way that, that, that can resolve it short of litigation has, has, has got to be uh, a better process, particularly in these high stress, um, serious medical treatment cases. I want to get to those in a second, because to be honest, that, that's the bit I think I really want to sort of dwell on, but I kind of, in a way, want to mentally tick off, if I can, 
the the kind of mediation in say clinical negligence where there's a really clearly you as a way you've been talking about two parties coming to a resolution and you know both walking away unsatisfied as, as, as possibly a definition of a and a, a, a good mediator a, a successful mediation and I can sort of see that there's a visible dispute and there's a potential you've got to reach middle ground I'm just sort of interested in 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 your thoughts on that compared to a mediation in say a serious medical treatment case where at least notionally we're all after the same thing which is what is the interest of the person if they don't have capacity say so kind yeah. of just sort of walk me through because you do, because you straddle both, just walk me through your thoughts on one compared to the other. Okay. So the, the um, I think clinical negligence disputes, they're, they're much better mediated than litigated, if at all possible. Um, and the really key thing about uh, clinical negligence disputes that I've seen is that the claimant is often looking for a non-financial remedy. Um, and if you litigate that dispute, um, the claimant won't get that non-financial remedy. They, all they will get if they're successful um, is an award of money um, and their costs. Um, they won't get necessarily get an apology or they may get lip service to an apology. But they, what, what I've seen occurring, which um, has been far more useful um, to, to some of the claimants that I've, I've seen is they, they've had the hospital say, well, would you like to participate in writing the guidance document to ensure that this doesn't happen again? Mm -hmm. um, and actually spending more time figuring out the process of how that guidance document is going to be produced rather than the, the nominal financial value of, of the claim. So I think um, mediation is really useful there in, in looking at the non-financial aspects of the case. The financial aspects of the case, it, it tends to be um, so long as um, there is an agreement in the room to, to produce some sort of financial amount, then you can normally get it to, well, at least within shouting distance of each other. Um, but most, I think that most of the, the mediations I've done, in fact, the overwhelming majority of, of the mediations I've done have settled. Um, but where they haven't settled, it's because there's been a fundamental disagreement about the case rather than um, uh, anything else. So I think, I, th I think clinical negligence mediations, the, the, the bottom line is money with a little bit of non-financial aspect to them. In serious me medical treatment mediations, um, money is quite literally no object because there is no remedy in the court, no, no financial remedy. And also um, people are not talking about um, uh, an award of money. They're talking about a um, treatment, either giving it or not giving it, um, that will either prolong somebody's life or won't prolong somebody's life. So, so you're looking at it through a very, very different prism. Well, partly as you're looking forwards as opposed to backwards. I mean, there's one kind of fairly hefty difference yeah. there as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, very true. Um, I think the, the one thing that I'd say about serious medical treatment mediations is that um, the, the moment the press gets involved and the moment there's a, um, a big uh, groundswell of opinion in um, social media is the point at which it becomes incredibly difficult to mediate. Um, because then, then, there, there, then there are other parties um, in the room and there are other people 
whose um, belief systems and views may not be uh, they, they may not be co actually co-aligned with either of the the, the, the parties who are ostensibly um, disagreeing about what is in the best interests of of, of, of P. Um, there are some very very active religious groups, for instance, who will uh, are, are very happy to join in um, and and help in. Sorry, help in inverted commas. Yes, I was just um, going to say, I don't think help is necessarily the right word, but yes. But yeah, help in inverted commas, the, these, um, uh, uh, these high, high stress, high pressure cases. Um, and, and, and just for instance, to, just talking about, uh, as, as I often do, patients in a vegetative or, or minimally conscious state, um, you don't actually know what that is unless you've been and seen um, an individual who is in a vegetative or minimally conscious state. And it's nothing like um, what you see in TV programs. Um, I, I was, was discussing this with, with, a, with a colleague um, and, and for instance, I never use the word coma um, because coma is, 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 a, is a, a null word in, in the intensive care setting. Um, I either have a sedated patient who I'm giving um, drugs to to artificially keep them um, sedated not unconscious sedated mm -hmm. um or um there is an intrinsic process of their brain which is um affecting their cognition um and th th there's a transition from vegetative state where somebody has no understanding no knowledge no interaction with the the, the world around them but yet may still have their eyes open may still have roaming uh, eye gaze may even um, move slightly, um, but have absolutely no understanding, no, no input, sensory input, um, through to the other end of the spectrum, what we're doing today, which is sort of fully interactive. And it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a graded process. There's no discrete um, um, uh, event between them. So, um, so well, we've well, we've drifted onto vegetative state, minimally conscious state, but but these are the sorts of cases that I get involved with as as a mediator. Yeah, and from sadly, uh, there were so many things I want to be talking to you about. The sort of time is slowly beginning to come to an end, and I, what I'm really, I think, what I'd find really helpful is in those sort of cases drawing together all those different strands of things you've been talking about and the different ways of thinking, your background. Um, and these things and, and thinking about how in those sort of situations it's possible or what what you would see as um, good outcomes there and good pro well actually let's think of it in terms of good process and then good outcome in terms of those serious medical treatment cases okay so so good process I, I've moved away from the traditional um, civil and commercial type mediations where they have a, a, a discrete period of time for the mediation and I think to uh, mediate successfully in the serious medical treatment world, I think it needs to be, uh, the process needs to be far longer and occur over um, several days, possibly even several weeks. Um, I haven't had one last month yet, but I've certainly had one last weeks. Um, and there, there's an intense amount of, of discussion right at the beginning um, on, on a particular day or two. Um, and then after that, um, then it's it's touching base and talking to um, the, the parties on, on a regular basis to ensure that there is 
um, that, that they're following through with, with the um, agreement they've got and that nothing new's come up or if something new's come up, it's been discussed. Um, and so I think a serious medical treatment mediation, the process lasts a lot, lot longer. And probably in this world of Zoom and uh, teleconferences, it's actually a much better process because you can talk to somebody um, like this, uh, as we're doing on Zoom today, um, or you can just pick up the phone and have a quick conversation with them. Um, so you don't need to be stuck in, the, in, in a room. I think clinical negligence mediations are really good when you put the pressure down on somebody. I think you don't want pressure in serious medical treatment mediations. and You want uh, to pe people to have the opportunity to think through their position over the course of, of, of days. So I think from a process point of view, that, that's the big difference that I see between them. In terms of outcome, well, um, I, I keep on going back to um, the, the speech in Ray Wai um, that Lady Black made in the Supreme Court, um, where everybody agrees on what something, I'm paraphrasing, but where, where everybody agrees on um, what is in P's best interest, then that is P's best interest. If, if, if there is agreement, there's no, no benefit in going any further. There's no benefit in including the court um, and litigating. Um, and, and that has to be the, the, the best possible outcome for P. What, what I'd say to your legal listeners to this, or watchers to this, is remember the day after. Okay, so if you do litigate and you go to the court of protection, and you get a judge to declare what is or is not in P's best interest. What happens the day after? All the lawyers involved have moved on to different cases, but the family and the clinicians are back in the hospital looking at each other um, over P, and they have to follow through with the decision. Um, and I would say that, that that reason is why we see cases keeping on coming back to the, to the court or the court of appeal um, or, the, or the Supreme Court even, is because clinicians and families, they've heard what the answer is, but it's a very difficult answer. And they're the ones being asked to follow through with whatever the decision, not the lawyers. That's a, such a profound point. And I, there are so many things that I want to pick up with you, but I, th I think just for time-wise, I'm, I'm, I'm going to draw stumps here because I try and keep things at roughly 20 minutes, but I think that point simply can't be emphasized enough. And so I'm really glad that you've, you've just made it so powerfully just to, to finish us up with. So Chris, thank you very much indeed for your time. I really, really do appreciate it. And to, uh, to anyone listening who is, if you did hear drills at any point, I'm terribly sorry. I hope it hasn't interrupted the wisdom that Chris has been dispensing. So thank you so much, Chris.